Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. Jeff and I are super excited today um, to talk about an issue that we have been honestly wanting to talk about for a long time now. Um, And I think especially so given that, you know, the last year or so has seen a really big explosion of racial reckoning, you know, following the Black Lives Matter protests that have taken place around the world. Um, However, I feel like there's one topic that is often excluded from discussions about racism, and that is colorism. And I think the reality is that it's really difficult to engage in nuanced discussions about race without addressing colorism and its impact on people of color. So today, we are super lucky to be joined by Devni Wimalasena. She is a current law student who is also studying the JD at Melbourne Law School with me. And she is currently based in Sri Lanka and is a prominent advocate in the feminist and body positivity space and recently worked with CNN on issues of colorism as part of the As Equals series. Devni, it's so good to see you. How are you today? Good. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm very, very excited. Um, I'm good. I feel like Colombo's back in lockdown as well. So same old, same old for you people. In same Melbourne. old, yeah. <laughs> but I'm yeah, not. I'm doing, I'm doing as well as I can given the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah no, this one's, uh, this one, this one's tough. I think oh. I've gone through the the loonies of just. Because normally I'm quite a stable person. I, I would say this. It's like I don't, I don't get affected by too much. But then just the last two weeks, I've just gone through these like roller coasters of just like rocking in a chair, oh, yeah, my God. like drinking on a Monday night. Like things I'm genuinely like not that proud of, but we're going to we're gonna get there. We're going to get there. It's... I, feel, I feel like we've stopped romanticizing it. Like there's no more baking bread. It's just oh, like oh, drinking no. wine in my pajamas yeah. at 9 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's where yeah. I'm at. Yeah, exactly. It's gone to the point where it's not how are you, it's just are you surviving? Yeah. Because that's all that matters right now. But that we didn't come here to talk about lockdown. (laughs) I don't think anyone would want to listen to a podcast episode about us, uh, from us, about lockdown. Um, We're talking to Devney today about colorism. So uh, as a start, for our listeners who may not be super familiar with the term, can you please explain what colorism is and how it differs from racism? Okay, so I feel like racism and colorism, there is an element of interconnectedness between the two because both rely on a system of white supremacy. And Mm. while race is, while racism is like racial based hierarchy and like usually happens between um, communities, between racial groups, colorism is quite pervasive within racial groups as well. So within communities, but the misconception is that it's not just within communities. It is also based within, it's instilled within white supremacy. So people outside of certain racial groups can still perpetuate colorism. So Mm. the term colorism, while there's a lot of like historical, um, like instances of colorism, the actual term that still interestingly enough gets autocorrected on certain like on like Microsoft and stuff because it still hasn't been incorporated as much into a vernacular actually um 
appeared, I think, in 1983 in Alice Walker, who I love, in um, one of her books, um, I think it was called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. And she describes mm. this idea of colorism with reference to the African-American community of prejudicial, prejudicial treatment of um, lighter versus darker skinned African-Americans. Yeah. Yeah. And while Alice Walker framed this within an African-American context, like there's a lot of research that has been done, especially recently, of colorism in um, Asian, in Latin American, in Middle Eastern communities as well. And another misconception is that like racism occurs, you know, in like in the West, it occurs within like systems of white supremacy in like Western countries where there's like a white majority. But with colorism, it hundred percent exists in Western countries, but it also mm. exists in countries like India, Sri Lanka, Africa, where there might be a majority of um, people of color or black indigenous people of color. And um, it's quite pervasive because it might not, I don't want to reduce the effects of colorism, but I don't want to necessarily um, sort of compare it to some of the more harmful effects of racism, mm. but colorism as well does really affect um, things from like mental health, employment, a lot of the common things, um, physical health, where people are perceived, stereotypes from being convicted to being elected, colorism does play a huge part. And um, it's really hard to spot as well, because it usually comes, it sometimes comes from the people you love around you. So like colorism, especially in within communities among younger people is perpetuated is like sort of propagated within families and within communities within schools and i think that's what makes it really sad because it this this sense of oh you're not good enough or your skin color is somehow a marker of xyz your value your worth your prospects your potential is said mm. by your caregivers, by mm. your teachers, by your friends, by your family, by media. Mm. So, yeah, the differences are nuanced between racism and colorism because they can take a very similar form. But I, it's it. I think the biggest difference between racism and colorism is skin tone bias and the fact that it can be propagated within the same community. And I also think, unlike racism, which is obviously race, and people do argue that race is a construct, skin color is is your first impression like it's biological it's it's right there it's someone's if if you if you're in a a society with colorist standards it's the first thing someone can judge you off of and Mm. while racism for people who are white presenting can sort of mitigate the effects of racism for someone that is affected by colorism there's very little that you can sort of do this is again not to sort of diminish people POC people of color who are white presenting like the effects can still be just as harmful but colorism especially in within communities affects so much of a person's life like it takes on such a like Mm. this is who they are they're the dark girl or the dark guy or blah 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 so Mm. yeah Mm. yeah and you know I think it's so you know, good that you've like essentially just given this huge and amazing overview of what it is because I feel like often, you know, talking about colorism, it gets so subsumed by racism, which obviously like is a very important issue and a problem in of itself. But yeah, like I think it's the nuance and how 
you know, insidiously pervasive it is, you know, across communities and within communities. I think it often gets neglected when talking about it, you know, in the mainstream media. Um, But, you know, I'm curious to kind of hear more about, you know, your personal experiences. And, you know, when did you first learn about this term? And, you know, have you had any experiences that, you know, you're comfortable sharing where colorism has played a large role and, and, you know, has impacted you on a, you know, on a certain level? It's quite funny, actually, because I was just telling my partner this earlier about how um, it's actually really exciting that we have this much conversation happening. It's still not, I don't Mm. think it's enough because colorism, unlike racism, is a very new sort of area that people are kind of dwelling into. But like we were talking about how when I was experiencing colorism, I did not know what it was. I didn't have the word. And um, the first time I heard the word colorism, I still remember it. It was a bit of like a... I don't want to like be dramatic, but I was sitting in a second year um, gender studies um, lecture at, mm. at Melbourne Uni. And so she's talking about, the lecturer's talking about black feminism and like I'm a brown woman. So I was like, oh, this is not relevant to me. Like, it's interesting, but this is not going to reflect my lived experiences. Like I was really interested in it, but I didn't think that I would relate to black feminism. And so she's talking about it. She's talking about all the like she's talking about all the really harmful effects of racism and then she gets on this topic of colorism and starts talking about skin tone bias Mm. and I had like the most like sinister like bulb moment of oh there's a word this is a problem this is not like Mm. and then again not to be dramatic but then I started like crying in the back of the lecture just like had like tears running down my face yeah but it was such a switch where like so much kind of just made sense I was like okay I, like, I feel like I over-intellectualize a lot of my life. So, like, it really helped to sort of, like, back up my own life ex- life experiences yeah. with, like, research and stuff. Mm. So, the first time I heard colorism was, the word colorism was four years ago. And since then, I've actually made a really conscious effort to talk about it. Because growing mm. up, I had no idea what it was. Like, I was, I was the the darker, and I'm using air quotes for people listening in. I was the darker girl in my family. Like, my parents are both Sri Lankan. We're not white. We're not like, like, it's not like everyone here is brown, but I was almost too brown to be the acceptable shade of brown. And from a very young age, it was something I was made really aware of, of the fact that, oh, your parents are of a fairer skin tone than you, but you're darker. And it wasn't always negative. It was, but it was always the first thing a lot of people pointed out. And then once I got to, so I went to school in England for a bit. And when I was in the UK, I I didn't have any direct experiences with racism, but I was very young as well. But there were certain microaggressions within, when I look back within my, within the, within the Sri Lankan community of either comparing me to um, black people, which is also really problematic because it's like, mm. oh, you're you're gonna have to align yourself with a different racial group because you don't fit in with ours almost Mm. and it's really problematic because it kind of ostracizes like it ostracizes you from your own community and um and then once i moved back to sri lanka my my experiences with colorism were actually the worst in sri lanka because when i was in school when i was in school um again like I had completely taken on this identity as the darker girl. I, ne- I never questioned it. I was like, you know what? I can't change it, so I'm going to own up to it. And my nickname all through um, high school in Sri Lanka was Black. So that was my nickname. And like, mm. uh, like, yeah. and I know, like, I don't. You could, obviously people listening in can't see this, but Jeff just made like a, a grimacing face. <laughs> but like, 
it was it was something that I responded to. Like my best friends used to call me that because I just fully accepted it. Like I was like, oh yeah, like you know, this is who I am. Because it was because like I used to get teased. I used to get called all sorts of names that I really didn't like. So black was the acceptable version for me of owning up to it and just taking the power back. Yada yada yada. Yeah. yeah. And like now, I obviously don't let anyone call me that because it it's because I'm so much more than a skin tone. Of course. But it really goes to show about like how much um, we sort of equate someone's skin tone with their entire identity and. To go back to your original question, I think I was made most aware of it when I was really young. Like it was such a defining part of growing up. It still is a defining part when people see me, especially being back in Sri Lanka.、Mm. I still see how much it's said, how much it's propagated, how much people talk about it. All compliments come with, "Oh, for a dark girl." So,、oh、like, it's so backhanded. backhanded. Yeah.、Oh. Yeah, and I've been like, I've been doing a couple of like body positivity like photo shoots while I've been in Sri Lanka, and I actually had to call out、um, a photographer on this because he kept he kept calling it melanin positive, melanin positive photo shoot. Melan, like it's like. Like、I can、really、just be a photo shoot, yeah. Like why? I'm why really proud to... of my. Yeah. Melon, melon <laughs> like I'm really positive. Of me, I'm really, really like proud of my melanin. But it's you will、yeah. never say that about、yeah. anyone else. Yeah. So, and I think like and like another like another way I'm so aware of it is that if you walk into a supermarket in Sri Lanka, you will or in like this part of the world, you will all you will see in like. The like the whole like toiletries aisle is like whitening products. Like a lot of products、mm. here are marketed towards、God. whitening, yeah. Which is now reframed as like maybe glowing and stuff. And every time、mm. I even like write out like a like a social media caption on like skin lightening, I will for the next like five days I will consistently get、um, sponsored ads for like skin lightening injections, and it's it's、An、just、injection. so pervasive. Yeah. So I'll get、oh. into that, but yeah. So there's um. It's actually quite harmful because the in, yeah, but it's quite common. So like it's、mm. so there's like there's obviously a class dividing the like the products that you can access on the lower end of the spectrum are the whitening creams and all that, and then on like if you can afford it, there's like IV like intravenous like procedures for、mm. skin、oh、lightening that that go like beyond your dermis and like stop melanin production、mm. and um. I was on a focus group a couple of months ago with a couple of medical experts, and I was just listening in, talking about、um, the the stuff that's in these whitening products. And there's this chemical called hydroquinone, which is basically like a paint stripper. Like it's really, really harmful for you, for like for anyone. But that's something that's injected because it basically like stops melanin production from like from like. Like I don't know, the cellular level or like from like below your skin, and you, you see it though, because you see people like become like so many shades lighter. Yeah, that is so messed up. That is messed up. Like, okay, it's one thing to you know capitalize on you know this idea that like you know of this anti-blackness idea, but like injecting like you know to、mm. actually like you know procedurally go into your skin and like have that surgical. Modification. That is another level of. That is. I feel so uncomfortable. Like that is. Oh my god. That's that's horrible. It's capitalism. It's really sad. It's because、oh, you, it's so sad. 
because yeah. you see like um like i've like i've heard and like i've had people share the story with me of like young girls like saving up for like a uh, injection procedure before oh, like before God. their wedding day so the same way we'd be like getting ready getting excited they'll be like saving up and i've tried whitening products when i was younger like my mom would never let me but i once saved up money when i was like 11 years old and like like bought this like whitening cream expecting it to sort of like change my life or whatever mm. and like that's the way it's marketed because mm. if you do watch um commercials for whitening creams it's the it's like as the girl it's usually a girl but there's also whitening products for guys and this, this is sort of another aspect that's kind of forgotten like it's framed very heavily on a female women focused um issue but a lot of men are victimized by colorism as well like it's yeah. very, it's absolutely a not a gendered problem but and like i feel like the male the market for like men is coming up more and more now but i remember like saving up because the um the commercials are the girl literally through the commercial becomes like multiple shades lighter and as she does she gets more friends she becomes more successful she gets like scholarships for universities she gets like husbands she gets a car she gets all these things and it's directly it's directly associated to lighter skin and for someone like when I was younger and growing up and all people could like the first thing that people would talk about is how I was like darker compared to my siblings and everything. I was like, oh, so if I become that, maybe this will happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then again, like I really like I've had a lot of conversations with people and another side of this is um, lighter skinned um, black people of color they always talk about how their light skin is just as much like the first thing people notice and it's something that needs to be protected like don't go out in the sun you'll get dark just as much as that people are like don't go in the sun you'll get darker mm. lighter skin like poc are like oh don't go don't go outside you become dark and then you'll probably lose the most valuable asset that you have which is mm. your light skin. so mm. it's really sad because um I think off the back of a talk show that I did, we had a lot of people sort of message about like their experience with colorism. And there were certain instances of people who qualified for like national sports teams that dropped out because they were scared of going out in the sun for training and becoming darker. Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. That segues really well into the next question because I think this is a big discussion topic and a big focus for um, this interview. And it's that in your opinion, what are some of the biggest factors that drive these attitudes towards skin color within society. Like, un- unfortunately, that is how capitalism is structured. Like, there's a need. Someone's going to fill that. But obviously, there's a lot of background that is driving people to to have this need to align their skin. So, like, how does what are some of these drivers, and how does this influence what we understand as beauty standards? Okay, so that's that's a loaded question, <laughs> and I because I think that while racism is mostly seen as a direct product of colonialism colorism was definitely perpetuated at, by colonialism as well but there's mm. a lot of references of um colorism and like colorist ideals pre dating back to pre-colonial times like i can speak to my own lived experiences like in the indian subcontinent um like gods like like actual heavenly gods like the lighter gods are like more kind and beneficial and the darker gods Mm. are more evil Mm. and from like a religious perspective you have to like as per like hinduism and buddhism you you have to do like more sin to be born darker so there is already this idea of like spiritually ingrained inferiority 
that is already carried out like separate of colonialism and white supremacy and obviously being colonized through a massive spanner in the works for like colorism where it's like okay the lighter your skin the more powerful you're probably not gonna get killed and enslaved so like that 100 percent drove that point like home further but inter but like while while like i do enjoy to like i do enjoy sort of drilling into where this whole like idea of like colorism and these ideals came from i think it's also important to be solution focused and think about the ways that it just to go back to your question it's currently propagated mm. and one of i think the one of the biggest driving forces is the way we see someone's values so like it's in the indian subcontinent like um the caste system is still mm. very much a thing and social hierarchy and there's still this idea that the lighter your skin the more well off you are or the higher your caste and even in countries like when i visited vietnam even in countries of in that region like people would in like sweltering hot days would still wear gloves and cover up completely because because becoming darker is still a sign of like oh you're out in the field or mm. you're not like so oh it's definitely God. like yep. Yeah, yeah, I'm so, I'm Vietnamese, yeah. so like that hits home so much. Like you know, it's the thing is, and I think the narrative that's often perpetuated in a lot of Asian countries, and to be honest, across the world, but I think particularly in Asian the Asian continent, um, is that you know this stay out of the sun, stay out of the sun rhetoric. I think you know it's one thing to you know have that stem from like protecting your skin from UV rays, whatever. But I think a lot of the time that is embedded in the fear that you know if you stay out in the sun too long, you will become dark. And there's this whole idea of anti-blackness that is so deeply rooted in a lot of Asian communities. And I think it's something that Asian people don't really talk about, which is you know something that is a huge problem. And it's really hard to talk about these issues with people in your family who are older and you know my grandparents for example like that that's something that's still in their head like you know it's spring now in Melbourne and she still has like five layers on of like you know like a hat sunglasses like coats and you know it is what it is but like where does that come from like why is that fear mm. still there and it's so pervasive and so insidious you know yeah exactly the same for a lot of East Asian countries as well so I'm Chinese it's that attitude towards like light skin the amount of skin lining products that are used in china um and a lot of korean skin products as well i think that beauty standard has really stayed even though you look at china now it's completely different from um what it was about 100 years ago and the one thing i always find interesting is how that beauty standard shifts between the east and west so the idea is you're dark in Asian countries because you're a farmer, you're a laborer, you're out in the sun mm. and you're white because you get to stay inside, you get to relax, you, you're you're removed from all the hard work. But then it's the opposite. Like people love being tanned in Australia and mm. America. It's like, let's go to the beach. It's it's the opposite. Like, do you, do you have any, um, do you have any views on why that is? It's like, how did that dichotomy come to be? Yeah. So just to sort of touch on the earlier point, um, when I still go sit in the sun on like a nice summer day, I feel empowered. Like I, there's still mm-hmm. something about the sun that is so radical and makes me feel so powerful because growing up, like I feel like such a badass when I just sit in the sun. Like it's so <laughs> silly, but I feel like I've reclaimed every single thing in my life just mm-hmm. because I can go sit in the sun. And that's like it's like growing up it's like it's still a thing though don't go in the sun you'll get dark you'll get dark you'll get dark because that's the worst thing that can happen Mm. right and when like i think with relation to like with like talking about tanning i think that 
it's really interesting because the first time I ever felt like my skin, I guess external validation. I'm not endorsing external validation here, <laughs> but I feel like I for the first time I felt like oh my skin might actually you know not be a bad mm. thing was when I actually moved to Melbourne and I had like white people oh the ideal skin tone come and tell me that they love my skin tone and I'm like what mm. excuse me mm. like are you sure <laughs> and just it was it was bizarre because like that was 16 very very in, like insecure had a lot of self-esteem issues stemming directly from my skin tone and here I had this quote-unquote ideal tell me that they love my skin mm. and like while I've come a long way from needing white people to value for skin tone. <laughs> I, I think that tanning is really interesting because what a lot of people that sort of want to, I guess, reduce the importance of anti-colorism advocacy talk about, oh, but what about tanning? Like, um, are you trying to stop people from tanning as well? Like, I can change mm. my skin tone. Like, it's not a big deal. And I think it's really important to not compare skin lightening to tanning because tanning doesn't come with a all the political consequences that skin lightening a lot of people turn to skin lightening not even just as a beauty standard but as a way of sort of um moving up a social hierarchy having better marriage prospects Mm -hmm. having better um employment prospects feeling like overcoming a lot of self-esteem issues and like not being bullied and i don't think that like obviously it's a generalization and I can't speak for everyone's lived experiences but I don't think tanning necessarily comes with as many political consequences as that Mm. so while like I guess like you know tan skin might be more attractive I don't think skin lightening is simply a question of attractiveness so even people who are very very secure in their self who feel completely good enough have have told me that once they've started dating certain people like their um partners parents have suggested skin lightening injections Mm. prior to like getting engaged because they didn't want to associate um their families with darker skinned people and like i think i think this is so insidious that i think i don't know if how far this is true but i think it was in the Meghan markle interview that someone she said that she was worried someone in the palace was worried about how dark yeah her her her, her baby would be be, and i think that's such a common theme especially at least in like this part of the world Mm. where people are terrified that the baby they're going to take off like the darker skin parent yeah and if you are born darker skin like my grandma's like darker than the rest of my family which is why i think i'm darker than the rest of my family i've been compared to my grandma all the time it's like Oh, but like you know, you're dark because your grandma's dark. <laughs> it's like it's one I, thing. I, I just don't get it because it's like what there's so much weight that's put on you know a person's value by the color of their skin tone, which is something like you no, no one has absolute control over, you know. And it's like you know characteristics, your personality, you know who you are, what you achieve, like that just all gets subsumed under oh, but like they're too dark or like oh, like, yeah. they're light enough. Like it's just crazy to me that you know so much of the focus is on our skin tone and it's like why why does this matter so much you know mm. like it's absolutely crazy um but you know I'm, I'm curious to kind of circle back to you know the skin lightening issue and obviously as you know we've touched on and you know, talked about 
huge problem across not just Asia, but the Middle East, Africa, within communities, outside of communities. And, you know, I think the race, the recent racial reckoning, you know, spurned by BLM has led to ma- many major companies um, like Unilever and Johnson & Johnson actually discontinuing and pulling out their skin lightening products or, you know, at worst, rebranding it so it's not fair and lovely anymore it's glowing and lovely or something like that yeah yeah I mean you know I'm curious to understand like do you think the beauty industry is actually beginning and will address you know these core issues of anti-blackness when for so long it has capitalized and profited off the perpetuation of like you know Eurocentric beauty standards of whiteness like do you think these changes actually mean anything or just in response to BLM Oh, I think I think name changes are one hundred percent tokenistic. Like, I am not convinced by fair and lovely becoming glow and lovely, especially being back in Sri Lanka. The commercials have not changed. Nothing mm. has changed, and they still say fair and lovely has now become glow and lovely. It's still the same. They literally it's still say the same. it's still the same. <laughs> like, please don't worry. Like, it, it's still the same, and it's it's really it's it's really um horrifying because. It really shows how much brands profit off of this. Like in, I think yeah. it's, I think it's like an eight. Don't quote me on this, but I think it's like an eight point three billion dollar industry currently projected to grow to around fourteen point something billion in twenty twenty four. So this is a market that's growing. It's not mm. shrinking, and like the issue here isn't against like whitening products. It's about the messaging. Why people do it? If we can have safe you know, like products that like would like brighten your skin, like sure. But the problem is with the way these products are marketed because they do still rely on fear tactics. They rely on making people feel not good enough, good old capitalism, like create insecurities, create like lacks in people and then give them a product to combat it, which is why going to this lacks and a lot of people like 100%, like Unilever, Johnson & Johnson, they definitely profit off of this. But one of the reasons why I personally don't advocate for pulling these products off the market is that there is still a huge demand for it. And if anything, and if research has shown and like conversations with the people have, you know, in focus groups and stuff, is that just pulling a product off the shelves is not going to solve the problem mm. because people are going to then turn to other methods and methods that might not even be like, I guess, FDA approved or mm, yeah. um, safe. And I think... I, I mentioned this earlier before we started recording, but um, like if I ever write a social media caption on skin lightening in Sri Lanka, I will immediately get multiple story ads for these random Instagram shops, just tiny little random places. I have no idea if these products are even safe for skin whitening injections yeah. being delivered to my house. And like, so I'll be watching someone's Instagram story and every like fifth story is a sponsored ad mm. for these skin whitening. And so... I feel like even if the big brands pull out, change change their change their branding, change the formula, whatever, like if they don't address the core root of the problem, it's not going to really solve anything. Mm. So I think beauty brands have a huge part to play in this, especially with the way these products are marketed. We have to talk about how a this is an issue. We don't need to be like it's radical. Like it's really radical to have beauty brands actually own up to this. But I think it has to come from brands as well. And it's really cool to see um, POC on beauty brands, especially Fenty, Lived in because do exactly this. Like I know it's, I say it's radical, but you see these massive billion dollar brands doing exactly this and thriving. So 
it, it really has to come from the brand as well because, you know, you can advocate all you want, but if you walk into a store, if you walk into a supermarket and all you see is become fairer, get all your dreams, like do yeah. this, do this to become, it's like, it's, um, it's horrifying. And yeah, I, I like talking about Unilever, like I, I detest Behind Lovely. I think it is horrible. The messaging yeah. is beyond disgusting but the other problem is that people who have stood up to Unilever especially in the marketing corporate sphere have been attacked repeatedly like one of um, someone I'm very close to she she was well not very close someone I'm friends with she was the editor of Cosmopolitan Sri Lanka and Unilever sponsors a lot of the um, like the, the advertisements and their branding for Cosmopolitan sponsorships and they wanted Cosmo to sort of promote skin lightening. She was editor. She said no. And then they basically went to Cosmo management with the with the ultimatum. Fire her or we're pulling out our sponsorship. Wow. So, and she ended up leaving. But, like, that's what happens to people who do stand up within a corporate sphere and ask brands to do better. But... Colorism is definitely a marketing tactic because it works. People are scared. People want to become lighter, and people and marketing big brands tap into it. Yeah, so, like if there's yeah, demand, no, there's going to be a supply, right? And like that's, yeah, which yeah, no, which sorry, is why know. I think cutting off, which is why I think cutting off supply without addressing why there is such a big demand is also really harmful. Mm. But um, I am not going to be convinced okay. with name changes because it's like I feel like now like it's still it's going back to usual programming as well mm. with like I guess BLM I don't want to say dying down but kind of I guess getting less media coverage yeah yeah all of the other issues are kind of dying down as well I think um because you were before you were like let's let's talk about some solutions like I want to be solution focused say for example in an ideal world that like next week you become the CEO of Unilever what yeah. would you do with this product like you, obviously we can't take it off the shelves because um, there's a lot of risks that come with people searching for the products. They may not be safe. They might become a black market for this type of products and creates a lot of issues. But if you were to remarket it, redo the whole thing, what would be a good way to go about it? Okay, first I'd cry and wonder why I am the CEO of Unilever in this dystopian <laughs> reality. Right? Why? Why am I here? What, what is happening? It's like Freaky Friday. Um, but um, I think... I think um, I've actually had like conversations with the the marketing was it coordinator one of like basically the, the top marketing PR guy for Fair and Lovely in Sri Lanka, and he basically said, "Oh, it's not our fault. There's a demand. We're just supplying. It's not like we're like basically like washing their hands clean of the issue." And I think if I was to be the university, you know, the best thing I would do is actually celebrate all the skin, all skin tones like like in like because right now. Um, even if you even like right now, even if you have darker skinned people in commercials and stuff, it's it's like, look, we've got a dark skinned person like right here. Do mm-hmm. you see? It's like mm-hmm. such virtue signaling. And I think it's really important to sort of take away that as well and just normalize it, normalize the different skin tones, not not have a darker skinned person and like like or hashtag melanin positive, but just let that person be. And like, yeah. ha- like celebrate mm-hmm. all these different skin tones without any sort of, I guess, like political value placed on or commercial value placed on the skin tone. But um, I think, 
I don't know how far pulling Fair and Lovely would necessarily be on my agenda because I don't think it necessarily solves the problem. I genuinely think that these problems go beyond a simple whitening cream tube. I think like marketing campaigns, awareness campaigns, because I heard about colorism four years ago. A lot of people in Sri Lanka or a lot of people in the subcontinent do not know of the word colorism. It's just it's just the norm. Mm. It's just normal. Like yeah. this is just this is just it. Like obviously, why would anyone want to be darker? Dark skin is bad, obviously. And I think um, like brands have a huge responsibility to sort of if they are committed to challenging that and having awareness campaigns talking about like educating people that this is actually a construct it's actually a form of um, systemic sort of prejudice it's not an inherent marker of someone's value yeah um sort of just i guess a bit of a segue from the question but um even like even children's books in, in this part of the world like even when you're teaching children like opposites there's like pretty and there's ugly and more often than not is like a picture of a fair girl as pretty and then a picture of a dark girl as ugly yeah. or whether that's like even in the west like ugly duckling yeah mm. like the uh, dark ugly duckling suddenly had a you know a glow up and mm-hmm. became a swan mm-hmm. and just fixed all the problems and i think that messaging is what brands as well need to focus on that this problem is not it's not in a vacuum like dark skin is better like the fair skin is better dark skin is bad it doesn't exist in a vacuum like it's caused by other factors and i think if i was to be oh god ceo of unilever <laughs> i would i mean i would run, I, would, <laughs> I would i would do a run an awareness campaign because i think it's really yeah. important that awareness, there's still not enough awareness of this issue yeah. yeah it's still very much an issue still especially in this part of the world talked within spaces of privilege talk within um it's not at all a like a mainstream conversation mm. among a lot of people um so and i try to be cognizant of that yeah for yeah. sure i was going to say i mean you know i'm just like thinking back to you know when you first talked about hearing about the word and the term colorism and what that actually meant you know at a uni lecture 4 years ago i got chills you know and i think it's so important mm. to be able to you know actually have the vocabulary to talk about you know, trauma or, you know, at least like things that have really impacted your life. Um, and I'm so glad that we're able to have this conversation today. And, you know, just to, you know, great segue into, you know, your point about awareness. It was recently announced um, that you'll be working <laughs> with CNN, which is super exciting, on the issues of colorism and skin lightening, you know, as part of the As Equals series. Congratulations, firstly. Um, can you tell us more about this initiative and how you see international media organizations actually having a tangible impact in the space? Thank you. Um, when I first saw the email from Warner Media, I was like, is this a scam? <laughs> like, this is a scam. They're trying to take my money. So, that, like, it says a lot. But, um, so the CNN As Equals program, for anyone that doesn't know, is like, it's a, it's a journalistic project to sort of tackle these issues head on. Like, because the As Equals program believes that there's, and it is true, there's a gendered aspect to a lot of the big problems in the world. And mm. it, this whole idea of, like, we need, tenacious journalism that sort of disrupts these um structures and i think um your question is about i think media organizations have a huge part to play mm-hmm. whether that's not propagating it is so not promoting these ideas not promoting these brands not giving airtime to these ideas so there's that first pronged approach of having a zero tolerance policy yeah. to propagating colorism because like you would 
companies are so scared to sort of like even like be accused of racism but colorism mm. kind of gets a, a bigger free pass with it because it's again so normalized mm. so because at the second you talk like colorism isn't a part of vocabulary around here because it's not a problem like it is just how it is so i think media organizations have a huge part to not sort of propagate that issue but i think they like like especially powerhouses like cnn with such a large reach have such a huge part in sort of organizing um people like sort of raising awareness but also playing a part in actually talking about how people can sort of organize themselves and i think this is why the as equal series is great because it's not just like a two minute um like news prime time mm-hmm. sort of hi guys this is issue called colorism this is what happens mm-hmm. it's like um they, there's a lot of different stakeholders that come in there's a lot of different ideas a lot of different perspectives because it's not also just a one-sided issue like there's a lot of different perspectives a lot of different ways it affects a lot of different people and it's super nuanced super complex and we're sort of still scratching on the surface of it and i think um media organizations need to have sensitivity towards these issues media organizations need to have representation the the sensitivity checks the diversity checks can't be a bunch of white ladies sitting in a room being like yeah this looks fun yeah. it's like no we need to be like engaging um black indigenous people of color into these spaces we need to be offering a seat at the table from the very from like behind the scenes as well it's not just who's on stage it's who is driving these campaigns what are the messages we're putting forward because um there's a lot of power in organizing i believe like um recently this isn't a, this isn't a media organization but arranged marriages are still a very big thing in this part yeah. of the world and there's like websites for it and one of the biggest websites shadi.com they introduced uh, a filter so you can basically say if you're fair witish which is like not fair but you don't want to you're not dark mm-hmm. and then dusky which is me i guess like dusky colored and which is like the big no like mm-hmm. you don't want your son or especially your son marrying a dusky colored girl and so basically what you could do is you could sort of create like your a dating profile essentially on this app and then filter people out based solely on skin color oh, and while this was completely normalized in india which is the 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 indian diaspora in north america sort of immediately launched a petition and i think it was like within a couple of weeks they took down that filter and that to me is the power of media organizations because if you actually do raise awareness on these issues people themselves can people might organize themselves mm. but they need to know yeah that it's an issue and especially in the age of social media like we've got so much information at our fingertips we and like this the, the kind of airtime the, the the issues that get airtime are the issues that are spotlighted yeah. so i think if 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 we want tenacious journalism as cnn says then we have to be tenacious we have to disrupt things from the very get go as complicated as it might be some people are just like oh this is too complicated i can't deal with this it's like yes but it it it's complicated because it's so pervasive and mm. it affects so many different people in so many different ways and we really have to move past this idea that white is right which is essentially what it is 
Oh my then. god, well yeah. said. Wow, well I could just <laughs> listen to you just speak about this topic for so long because I think you're just so eloquent and clearly so passionate about mm-hmm. this space. And I, yeah, sincerely wish you all the best with this series. I mean, is it Thank live you. at the moment? Like, how can we get our listeners? No, to I, I, I can't like talk about no. it too much. Talk about, <laughs> talk about, talk about who else is involved. Like, you know, kind of like talk about like my mm-hmm. bit in it because, but it's really interesting and like because there's a lot of again massive imposter syndrome for me sometimes i'm like hello what am i doing on this call no, but there's a lot there's a lot of really really cool people who who are to the likes of ceos of unilever as well oh, on these calls yeah. and like there's some really interesting perspectives coming out of it and i think the first part of this project will be um articles so like it'll be written media first um, compiling stories, compiling the actual issue. So sort of framing the issue before we sort of talk yeah. about all the solutions and all the ways that we can disrupt it head on. But I think above all else, I think there's so much power in just seeing someone else own it. And I think that's why, I don't know, like I sometimes on social media might sound a bit like a broken record about like, hi, I'm sitting in the sun, look at me. Because like for a lot of other people, like I've never so- I've never seen someone yeah. sitting in the sun and being proud of it. I've never seen, when I was young, I never saw dark girls owning their skin and being proud of it. And now I do. And it, it's empowering. It's yeah. amazing. And it 100%. makes me feel like I can be safe in my own skin. So, Yeah. I think oh, media yeah. has a huge part to play. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I think like the the message around the idea of understanding how to describe an experience is such a powerful thing. Like being able to get someone. I think um, Alice Pung said something similar about the word microaggressions. Just being able to verbalize and understand and give a definition to an experience has so much power. And to be able to do something like this on a wide wide scale through something like CNN, I think is only gonna have some amazing impact. So we're super excited for you and we're super excited to see the final product. So let us know and we're gonna blast it everywhere once it's out there. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks guys. And no, um, I used to live with Alice when I was at college. So in my undergrad years and Alice is such a legend and I think um, I was I I was very much a baby feminist when I was having this initial conversation with Alice and like having her perspective and actually having the language to articulate what my lived experience was so powerful just like you said Mm -hmm. it's which is why these conversations are really really exactly because you don't know who's going to have a light bulb moment off the back of one of these conversations exactly yeah thanks for having me oh my god no thanks for coming (laughs) i genuinely have learned so much and yeah like like you said i think it's so important to spotlight and air this issue um when it's been so subsumed um and overlooked so often so thank you so much for coming on it's absolutely it's been an absolute delight and i'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed it as well yeah, absolutely. Um, if you guys enjoy the episode, uh, give us a like, give us a follow on all the different channels. I think you guys have probably heard me say that a million times by now. Obviously, we'll link Debney's socials as well, so be sure to follow her work for more awesome stuff. Um, thanks again, and we'll catch you guys on the next one. Bye.